the more doses on average you have in a region within the United States, the bigger increase in mortality that region has had in 2022 when compared to 2021. Today, I sit down with Josh Sterling, an insurance research analyst who has been dissecting alarming trends in life insurance, mortality, and disability data over the last couple of years. The way this works in insurance world is this could take two decades to play out. In stark contrast to Big Pharma, the life insurance industry actually has a big financial incentive to help the vaccine injured, Sterling says. He's the founder of the Insurance Collaboration to Save Lives. If we were actually just screening for these people, the vast majority of these health issues that could, be, before they become catastrophic, could very easily be managed, not necessarily solved, but certainly managed. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Josh Sterling, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Jan, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, so we met last December at this uh, hearing that Ron Johnson had convened on uh, COVID-19 vaccines. You know, what are they, how they work, and possible causes of injuries. And indeed, you presented at, at this hearing some very interesting and very troubling data um, around all-cause mortality and some ideas about what might be causing that. I mean, a, a very significant increase um, in America and other places around the world. Why don't you just kind of remind us uh, what it is that you presented? What I presented at the, se- at the hearing in D.C. was the semi-famous, you know, one chart that tells the whole story, uh, which is using data from the United Kingdom's Office of National Statistics, where they, for about 18 months, have been tracking the, the, the monthly mortality every month for the vaccinated populations by the number of doses as well as the unvaccinated in the United Kingdom. Starting in, in January 2021, they generated this data with a couple of months lag. Uh, they released the most recent version of it in, uh, over the summer, uh, summer 2022. What you see when you analyze this data is you see that uh, although the vaccinated appear to have had lower mortality in the year 2021, in general, and aggregate across all ages. In 2022, generally, the vaccinated have had much higher mortality than the unvaccinated. Uh, And in particular, uh, there was a couple of really troubling things that emerged, which is, I think, one of the reasons that Senator Johnson was so interested in this data. You can see that people who only took one dose of the vaccine had 145% higher mortality in the more recent months. And that's not a recent phenomenon. That's what's been going on for a number of months throughout this data set. Um, that's probably because they were injured by the shot. And of course, that's a real tragedy because you know we all know someone who, who, who had a bad reaction to, to the COVID vaccine shot. That's a very common thing, unfortunately. It also showed that on average, across all population in the United Kingdom, you can see that overall, in the last data we have available, there's a 26% higher mortality rate for those who've been vaccinated versus those who haven't. Um, and under the age of 50, it's a 49% higher mortality rate. Those are really troubling numbers. Um, you know, I've gotten a fair amount of uh, interest in what I said in DC. Because when you, as I continued, and I simply just to put a pin in it, uh, if you just take those numbers and you apply them against, you know, in the United States, we have about 3 million deaths a year. Uh, And if you use the number of people who are um, vaccinated, you know, the different proportions in the United States and the different categories, and you apply the experience from the United Kingdom to the United States, you end up concluding that we are probably having about a 20% additional mortality as a result of the vaccine 
which, if those numbers hung true, would be 600,000 deaths a year in the United States. And this isn't something where you know for sure this is the cause, right? Just to be clear. Yeah, no, this yeah. is, this is you know, you're, I used to work on Wall Street and you were sort of a financial detective where you pull pieces of data from lots of different things to try to figure out what's happening right now and what's likely to happen in the future. And so, you know, we're working with like lots of different types of data and consulting with medical doctors and, uh, you know, people in the insurance community, you know, public health researchers, you know, ultimately there's a lot of different ways to look through the numbers. And I think there's at least three or four different ways to triangulate into a similar conclusion uh, from big data sets that have tens, if not hundreds of millions of people in them. But ideally, we'd all like to do a lot more research to know for sure. Because there are other reasons why there might be higher mortality. I guess, for example, when the shelter in place policies were very, uh, uh, um, I, let's say they were active, right? And actually in the UK, it was a bit different than here too. That, that That's interesting. But that you know, arguably is, could be a factor that plays in. How do you tease that out? Well, I, I, let me share some data I think that, that, that could speak to, to possibly to speak to some of that. One of the data sets that uh, insurance people in particular look at is non-COVID mortality. And not, so let's just set aside COVID and just talk about what's going on besides COVID. That's sort of what that means. And in the summer of 2020, you know, peak lockdown in a lot of places, there was a little bit of a blip in non-COVID mortality. I think that was probably attributable to, you know, sort of social social deaths, you know, from isolation and loneliness, the loss of job and alcohol and fentanyl, things like that. But those actually went away. And actually, you saw non-COVID mortality be like a net benefit, like it was lower than you would expect for a couple of quarters late in 2020 and then early in 2021. Um, what's happened on that data series is since the third quarter of 2021 generally has been continued to be higher, it has continued to be elevated. And recently non-COVID mortality, so excess mortality, but not from COVID, represents about 62% of our current mortality problem. And so, you know, it's not COVID, could be a lot of things, could definitely be some of the social stuff, could definitely be possibly contributed to by long-term lockdown impact. Um, you know, Long COVID is a possibility too. You know, the spike protein floating around does a lot of damage, doesn't matter really where it's coming from. You know, there's multiple sources, obviously, whether it's the vaccine or whether it's the infection. Um, but, you know, the big systemic change, as a data analyst, you look and you say, if we're looking at the time series, you end up saying, well, gosh, there's a lot, the easiest way to explain this and probably the most statistically likely way to explain it is in fact, you know, the change that occurred in 2021, largely when, you know, vast majority of the world got vaccinated. You know, because we're, you know, the the group I've been working with is a bunch of insurance geeks. We've looked at it like a bunch of different ways. And so I actually think the UK data is one of the most powerful ways of looking at it. Because if you design this, ultimately what they've done is report that it looks it's not a randomized control study because there's going to be sample biases between people who do or don't take the vaccine. Hard to know for sure if they're healthier or they're less healthy. There's a lot of different theories on what the bias would be a good guy or a bad guy for different analysis. But ultimately, what you're looking at there is a real world experiment with like, you know, tens of millions of lives. And so the statistical credibility is real. Whether or not, you know, how one interprets it is always open for debate. And I think this last bit of data you were describing, I think that was US CDC data, if I'm not yes. mistaken. Yeah, yeah. But then before you were talking about UK data. So what, why not just use CDC data across the board? Well, you know, because this is a global phenomenon, one of the issues that's been helpful is that there's a lot of different 
global public health authorities with different amounts of data, with different types of data available mm -hmm. and different amounts. And the CDC provides a lot of data, but they don't provide some of the most critical pieces of data. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we've done work with like German hospital records because the Germans are very well organized and they're very open and transparent with a lot of their records. And so you can analyze to see, you know, what are the trends in different diseases and symptoms and, and treatments and procedures that are in you know, what's going on in the hospitals in Germany, you know, that data is not public in the United States. Like, it's just not available. Similarly, you know, I would love to do a report that shows um, in the United States, you know, we've got, what, 250-something million people who've taken the vaccine at various levels of dosing and, and numbers of boosters. You know, obviously, the U.S. government, through the CDC and, and, uh, and Social Security Administration, as well as of all the various states, you know, they have more or less records that could be merged to do all of these things and to literally recreate that same study. They, if they've done that study, they haven't published it. Um, and they absolutely haven't released to the public of like the data analyst community and public health researchers and insurers that kind of data for us to do ourselves. And so the best we can do in the United States is use aggregated data the CDC does release. And one of the things that's really interesting about that, and you know, I, everybody involved with this is working like 24/7. It feels like on these things, and it's a, it's it's an emerging it's an emerging problem, and there's a lot of things uh, happening quickly. We didn't have this data in D.C., but since then we pulled together an analysis that uses CDC data from the United States that compares the vaccination status um, ranked by the number of doses mm. across regions in the United States, and then compares that to whether to the amount of increase or decrease in mortality this year versus last. Mm -hmm. And if the vaccine was helpful, well, if the vaccine was neutral, there would just be no relationship between these two things. Mm -hmm. If the vaccine was helpful at reducing all-cause mortality, you would see that the more doses a region, you know, state, state of Vermont or Maine or, or Hawaii or, you know, Connecticut or someplace, someplace that's pretty highly vaccinated, you would see lower levels of mortality year over year because people got more vaccines than in other places, which who didn't do as much for whatever reason. Um, and you would see a, an improvement and you would see a line that slopes down to the right. Instead, when we did that analysis and we cut it a number of different ways, we did it by different type of city and region and, and we did it by uh, age group as well. So, right. so we did some thoughtful to make sure there wasn't a bias in it, but no matter which way you do it, what you end up seeing is, is the chart goes, the line that you create, a regression line, goes up and to the right which is to simply to say that the more doses on average you have in a region within the United States, the bigger increase in mortality that region has had in 2022 when compared to 2021. And so that is a aggregate statistical tool that largely, I mean, it exactly confirms the conclusion out of the UK data. It's a different way of doing it. It's a totally different data set, but ultimately it leads to a very similar mathematical conclusion, which is a really unfortunate one because, you know, obviously, hundreds of millions of us have, 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 you know, either personally or our friends and family and all society have to now deal with these consequences of what are the long-term health consequences relating to these, you know, and I'm, I'm obviously hopeful that we can, as a society, start to focus on those at, at, because that's, that's, that's the opportunity to try to solve this problem is, is focusing on health. There's something that's a bit unintuitive, but I think you, you, you're arguing that it, it kind of tells the same story. One of them is, is that the, what you just described, this regression line, the more boosted people are, the mortality among those groups is, increases, mm -hmm. right? Um, but in the UK data, I think you said that it's the single, the, 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 it's the first shot that actually shows the highest mortality. So how, do these, how are these things not in opposition to each other? Um, it's a really good question, Jan. The, um, 
they have to do with how the data is structured. On an individual basis, I think you can make a better prediction for an actual person's mortality risk based on the UK data, mm. which is to say that if you took one dose and stopped, which is what that means, because it wasn't a design study, it's an observational study, it's literally just did you stop at one dose, mm -hmm. then we can infer that based on the statistics we have from the UK that you're likely to have substantially higher elevated mortality. The reason that we speculate, or I think intuitively, that that explains that is that these people stopped because they were injured on the first dose. There was some, basically, they said, okay, I'm not doing this again. Within 21 days, they were supposed to get a second dose, and they said, no, I'm not going to do that. Mm. In the U.S., that's about 12% of Americans. What the data here would suggest is that if the relationships in the U.K. are same in the U.S., that that's, you know, 12, those people would have 145% higher mortality rate. And the reason that that doesn't carry on to the U.S. data in aggregate is because when you look at individual, when you look at big groups of people, the little individual signal there of their behavior is washed out. Mm. Because really what we're just saying is, well, were there more doses in Georgia than there were in Alabama or, you know, Vermont versus Maine or something like that. And in that case, it's all just, you know, it's just a question of what's the aggregate level of dosing. In which case, if you use the regression line on that sort of data, you end up being able to very clearly uh, draw like a conclusion that says, you know, the slope of the line is basically how much mortality increase you're getting from every dose. And so it's about a 7% increase in aggregate mortality mm -hmm. from U.S. data per dose. And if, if you're over the age of 50 and you took all five doses, that'd right. be a 35% increase. Right, because, and just for the benefit of our viewers and my own sanity, um, the bottom line is that you have, in the UK, there's actually, you can, you know that there's, the, there are these specific people that have had one, two, three, four people that you're tracking. In the US, you can only say uh, that overall in this state or that state, this is what it looks like. Yeah, and that's, that's why, exactly right. right. The, yeah. the, the, the UK statistician, the statistical department in the UK is really good. And I think they're, I think they seem like they're really good in Germany too. Mm -hmm. And so there's just, we have better data to work with overseas. But the data we have here is troubling and that's where you get, you know, we started our conversation talking about excess mortality generally. Um, as of the third quarter, you know, COVID is really, I mean, it's in the rearview mirror now. We still have 12 and a half, I mean, it depends on how you calculate these things, but if we sort of use CDC numbers and then compare it to 2019, current elevated mortal mortality is elevated by about 12.4% 12, 12 in the third quarter of 2022 relative to where it was in 2019. Approximately, that's, that rounds up to 400,000 people a year. Yeah, just on that number, and so that's and that's, that's across all age groups. Um, well, it it, it 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 is across all age groups. You get into measurement questions with the different age group levels because of, um, uh, uh, to be honest, challenges in the pull forward effect, in trying to figure out which is particularly extreme in the uh, older ages, right. where um, the the severity, the the, the increased mortality isn't as extreme for the older ages, largely because, than the younger ages, largely because there's you know about a million people who died in 2020 and 2021, largely in the older ages, uh, who otherwise, if they hadn't died in those years due to COVID or due to failure to treat COVID or bad hospital protocols that led to like deaths that were not necessary, um, if those people hadn't died then, they would be dying now. But since they've already died, 
it looks like we've got less death now. That's not really a win. That's kind of double counting. <laughs> you would say it's a distortion, right. you know, and all, a, a, a Wall Streeter might talk about it as a pull forward effect. Mm -hmm. Like when a, uh, a retailer runs a special and a promotion and they sell, all, they sell a lot of extra toasters this year, but then nobody buys the toasters next year because they just got a big discount. And so then their numbers are much lower the following year. And that's what I think is going on in a lot of the US in particular because we had much higher mortality than a lot of other countries uh, for a variety of reasons. We have a bigger pull forward effect too, which is why it looks like on some measures we have lower mortality right now than in other places. Well, it was, and it was concentrated, of course, on those higher risk you know, groups, especially yeah. the, the, the of significantly advanced age. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. Okay. Wow. Um, so you, you're clearly a numbers guy. Um, so wh why don't you tell me how you got interested in this? Because on, on, on the one hand, of course, the numbers are fascinating in themselves, but they're also, you know, pretty morbid. And at the same time, um, you know, I guess you could get in a lot of trouble looking at these numbers from what we've seen over the last few years. So tell me a little bit about how you got here. You know, the short answer is, is I've been an insurance guy my whole career and I've had enough prior experiences looking at numbers that are controversial and getting in trouble that that didn't push me away. I'm not an economist, but like, like you know, every morning I wake up and I look at a whole bunch of charts about the economy because I'm a former Wall Street guy. Like I like thinking about numbers. I like understanding the relationships of things. And so you know, with all of a sudden this explosion in public health data coming out, and it led me to this journey of trying to understand what's going on. Along the way, I became passionate about it as a matter of faith and of calling that I want to try to help people because I began to realize what the data was saying. And I, and I began to, you know, either, either meet or see people who anecdotally, you know, I'm sure they're just anecdotes, but they're real people who are in some fashion harmed by, you know, COVID policy generally, but in particular, some of the things that are driving mortality now and morbidity and, you know, disabilities are up through the roof too, at all, you know, record levels in 2022. Um, I, I just felt moved to try to, to try to help folks. Ultimately, that's, that's, that's why I'm here with you today. That's why I was, got involved with Senator Johnson uh, last month. Well, you're, and you're a father, as I understand it. I, I am. I've got uh, two beautiful girls. I'm very lucky. They're okay. And, um, you know, and I saw videos of people like Maddie DeGarry, the poor girl who was in the Pfizer, Pfizer child study who suffered completely debilitating paralysis. I mean, I can't speak for her. I'm not sure her current status. Uh, but I, 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 uh, uh, ultimately, this, this, the stories are heart-wrenching as a father. As a professional analyst who likes to read things and likes to look at numbers, you know, I read the child study, the Pfizer study, and realized that they didn't even code her as a, as an adverse, as a serious adverse event. <laughs> and that starts to like piece together. I began to realize there was a lot to this that I, as a moral duty, as a humanitarian calling, I should try to use those skills which I, I learned on Wall Street for a better and more noble purpose. And that's why I've been trying to help. Insurance industry data is very difficult to interpret. So this is what became your, your specialty to try to kind of tease through it and explain it to these to, to the Wall Street types who are deciding how to deal with the different realities. And you were quoted um, in this story about Lincoln Financial and their kind of unusual downgrading. There seems to be some kind of I'll use the term signal in the in one insurance company at least that suggests that there's some kind of there's increased mortality and they're concerned about it, but it, you're not seeing it in other places. Right, so is that really a signal that needs to be looked at? I think you're seeing it in the raw data. A reasonable question for something like 
and I don't think this is just a Lincoln thing. This is a most insurance companies, well, certainly most life insurance companies, a lot of other insurance companies are going to face different, you know, potentially very serious challenges coming out of like whatever we want to call this, you know, the knock-on effects of COVID, whether we say it's the vaccine or something else, you know, it doesn't really matter. The complexities legally, both in terms of losses, as well as the terms of like incidental litigation that will come from this and other complexities seem likely to be a problem. Uh, but, you know, for your viewers, you know, I used to be a professional insurance analyst and, and I, I, for many years I kept a, uh, I kept, I kept a uh, fortune cookie I had happened to find on my desk because it reminded me that it's my job to, sim and, and, the, and, the and the fortune cookie saying was that it's your job to simplify. But the simple story for like life insurers in particular, insurers generally, is that their accounting it is not bad, it's the way it's designed and they follow the rules. But the rules are designed to smooth out decision, smooth out bumps in the road and make very gradual changes over long periods of time. Um, I would, they also, as an industry, don't have really to borrow any money. And so for your financially astute viewers, you'll recognize those things are basically exactly the opposite of like banks and hedge funds and other types of financial intermediaries that borrow most of their money and they borrow it sometimes overnight. So it's in at least a lot of their assets are very, uh, uh, and obligations and things are very much marked to market. And so what looks like a canary in a coal mine in the insurance industry for potentially huge problems, which is, you know, a leading industry player like, like Lincoln Financial to get downgraded, you know, from A plus to A, you know, and I'm, I'm not saying anything bad about Lincoln. I don't think it's their fault, uh, but to be downgraded because their policyholders are keeping their policies longer as they age, presumably because they want their protection, presumably because maybe they're feeling like they're not as healthy as they were hoping to be. That would argue for potentially more losses in the future relative to higher mortality because the policyholders themselves are revealing through their actions, their choices to keep their policies, that, 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 that perhaps that there's like adverse health signals. Basically you're saying people are not canceling their insurance policies at the normal rate and that indicates that there is, you know, that people have health concerns, so they're keeping them. Is that, is, am I yes, getting this right? Yes, okay. yes, that, that, would be yeah. the, that would be the best interpretation, I think. Um, and if you finish that, if that's the underlying signal, and that's the way I interpret it, and it was a big industry, uh, industry uh, AM Best, they regulate insurance companies, I've talked to them a number of times about these issues. They were very kind to quote me in this article talking about that, and basically saying, you know, hey, we think this could be a sign of things to come, you know, politely, and again, I don't, it's not a Lincoln thing, it's a systemic thing. Um, the way this works in insurance world is this could take two decades to play out. And, I, and if this is unbelievable, you know, people who've heard of long-term care, maybe some of your viewers have these policies. The insurance industry was writing them gangbusters in the 1990s. Um, GE back in then, those days, was a life insurance company among other, th well, they did all sorts of things back under, you know, Jack Welch in the 90s. Um, they sold that business in part because of all the money they were losing in long-term care in the mid-2000s. Uh, it took it public, it became Genworth. Genworth over the past decade completely imploded because they never, because it took them, so now we're talking about the 2010s from problems made, decided, created in the 1990s. But they, you know, had lots of financial troubles, got downgraded, became more of what they call a company and runoff, doesn't really write new business. You know, the regulators are very much looking over everything they do. Um, GE, four or five years ago now, before COVID, shortly before COVID, surprised the world 
when all of a sudden they found they still had problems relating to long-term care buried in GE in like 2018 in a business that the world had basically thought they had gotten rid of in 20, 2004 or 2005 in, in you know, re relating from bad decisions made through a lot of things relating to long-term care insurance policies um, that, were, that were made in the early 1990s. And so, long so like life insurance accounting in particular is very long duration mm. and it's important to look for the signal and not do to get too hung up on the accounting because the accounting is going to take a lot longer to play out than the actual underlying reality. I want to switch gears a little bit. You mentioned that the Germany has really good data. And so what is this German data showing? So the German data, we, we were able to get access to a, a large with, you know, aggregated information from tens of millions of individual uh, hospital visits into a uh, based on uh, basically procedures and diagnoses and, uh, 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 and billing codes. Um, this is the kind of work a good health insurer would do, is they, they want to understand what are we paying for, how does that change over time, what are the trends, you know, are there signals in different types of procedures, um, you know, because obviously if you think about what's going to predict the funeral home, you know, you got to look at the nursing home and what predicts the nursing home is the hospital. You, know, you want to look further up the chain to see, sort of get closer to the actual underlying health issues to try to predict what's coming. I guess the most important thing we saw was there was a lot of variance. There was a lot of evidence that there's multi-systemic harm. There's lots of stuff happening. It's not stable. Um, and there's lots of different types of uh, uh, bodily systems that seem to be affected. Um, it's also, I think it's worth noting, that there was a lot of very high increases in like the other and unknown and we're not really sure category. Mm. You know, but then if you sort of set those as, you know, orders of magnitude, 200%, 500%, you know, big increases in, in categorization that was like not obvious to the hospital practitioner who was, who was coding, coding the event. So what were examples of? Um... I, I, examples of things that we would get to where you could see very clear significant increases include things like um, pulmonary embolisms, which feels, like a part, which feels like a lung problem, but is actually relating to blood clotting typically. So I, as best I understand it, it's not a medical person. Um, the, uh, uh, but obviously, uh, but also very significant in signals in, uh, in fetal, uh, fetal problems, as well as uh, maternal health. You know, I think there was a, a signal from our database of, from this German data of something like a 67% increase in ovarectomies and like sort of, you know, childbearing age women. Very big increases in various immune related issues. Um, sub, uh, substantial increases in cancer. Uh, that's interesting because you don't see that in the CDC data. Mm -hmm. which again speaks to the benefit of the multiplicity of sources because you know every data set's going to have its own quirks and whether it's a whether it's an accidental bias or it's perhaps some sort of policy decision about how they want to code things which you know I think there's a lot of people who think that there's some degree of policy judgment in how the CDC presents and, and stores its data um, you know in the German data you see clear signals for cancer and you know you don't really see that at least in the way I've looked at the analysis here in the in the US and the CDC's data but what you do see is um, uh, one of the things that was surprising, and now that I'm aware of it, I see it all over the place uh, in, in people in my own life, um, eye-related problems. Mm. Eye-related problems. And, and you wouldn't see that in a cause of death analysis because eye-related problems don't kill you. But order of magnitude, like 150% increases in eye-related surgeries mm. and other types of procedures. Mm. And, and since we discovered that, we talked to some practitioners and they said, well, gosh, that very easily, and, and, and they, you know, could be explained by microclotting within all of the super small eye, you know, and so just as you might have like, you know, cerebrovascular and other things which show up in these data sets, you know, you know, uh, basically blood clotting 
that causes a problem, not in just a general sort of place like your leg, but in a critical bodily organ, like your eyes or your lungs or your uh, you know, kidneys, that this is actually, it happens to be, a, uh, it happens to be a, a sort of a logical secondary effect. So it's very troubling stuff. And just uh, in terms of, have you looked at disability data? Um, so what, what is the disability data talking so, about? So uh, the United States does a pretty good job of tracking disabilities. This is not disability claims data. That's a different sort of data set. This is literally every month the Bureau of Labor Statistics, when they do their employment surveys to figure out who's employed and not for like the unemployment report that you know, gets a lot of media, they also ask questions, is there anyone disabled in your household? And, you, and in order to be disabled, you have to, you know, there's a number of criteria you have to meet, but you, you know, they ask you about your activities of daily living. They've done that for about 15 years. In the middle of 2021, I think particularly March or April, it started really rapidly rising. Uh, we're now at record levels that like, not just on a numbers basis, but on a percentage of the population basis, we're at levels we've never seen before. Uh, approximately, depending on how you think about it, somewhere between two and four million people incrementally have been have been disabled over the past year or two as a percentage of our workforce that's probably you know somewhere between certainly it's more than one percent maybe it's two you know depending on depending on I guess which of these numbers you use and so you know some of our unemployment challenges over the past couple of years you know have probably been in part because of because of these disability issues and this is not conclusive by any means because it's not designed to be but if you were to do a temporal study you end up saying that most of the disability increase came in the couple of months after the vaccines rolled out and so you know that's a eminently plausible theory that one is related to the other that doesn't prove it but that certainly raises questions there was a rasmussen poll i believe that said that something like 28 percent of americans including, and in fact, more Democrats than Republicans, which was an interesting finding, um, believe they know someone who has actually died from vaccine injury. Um, that, I mean, that, that's a fascinating and yeah. kind of crazy uh, poll. <laughs> um, and again, some sort of signal there, right? Absolutely, right? That's a very large group of Americans, especially if they cut across both parties. We will have to address these issues. It seems to me, like, you know, even looking at, you know, Pfizer's own data, all, all the kind of signals that we're seeing are essentially pointing in the same direction, right? Is that, is that how you read I, it? I, that's, you know, I sometimes give to institutional audiences a, a bunch of charts together, and that's sort of the story I tell, which is, you know, it's not just one thing. It's like a whole half a dozen of them now, really. You know, and it's not like we want to be right on this. We'd rather be wrong. We'd rather find that there's no relationship. But when you really do it as like, you know, a statistically oriented professional analyst who like spent his entire career thinking about insurance, which is counting up, you know, burned buildings and car crashes and dead people and, and, and unfortunate stuff and trying to figure out the like the parameters of that so we can price for it or reserve for it or invest in a company based on those things. You know, you do your best work and you say, my goodness, this is a big problem. You end up having confidence, not just because of the numbers, but because of the multiplicity of it. You know, if something is true, you can prove it in many ways. Right. So, I mean, the, the bottom line is, I think that you're saying that there's this, there's very significant mortality that's happened. I'm kind of, uh, I'm, I'm really interested in, um, you know, how you're thinking about trying to rally 
I guess some sectors of society which might be difficult to rally around around something that a lot of people don't even want to admit exists at this point. I mean, I'm talking about this 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 excess mortality even as a reality. Right? Yeah, you can't hide that. Yeah, yeah. Um, my, you know, I think there's a lot of different people doing different things to try to help. My focus has been and is going to continue to be how can I bring the global insurance industry in to be part of the solution and the reason I'm doing that is because I know the vast majority of people who work in insurance do so because they want to help their neighbor and they're not central to this problem but they're dealing with its consequences there's something like seven trillion dollars in the life insurance industry in the United States alone in terms of assets I've been on the phone for the past two weeks with lots of important people in the insurance industry because we're founding an organization called the Insurance Collaboration to Save Lives. I've been shocked and blessed by the amount of momentum that we're starting to get. And we're absolutely not pushing, you know, a vaccine-focused message because that's a divisive message. You know, it's a divisive message, ultimately. Um, and, you know, to your point earlier, there's only so much anybody can know. And the more practical answer is, is it doesn't really matter. That part of the damage has been done. What my belief is, is the insurance industry, if it focuses its resources on helping to, helping to, to solve this problem, there's no question that we can't make a huge difference. And so the challenge that we're trying to, we're going to, we've made, and we're in the process of trying to organize resources around and get, get, get support for, is we want to save a million lives. And we're going to do it by screening, by screening with blood tests. Because the vast majority of things we just talked about from without inventing new science, we can figure out the symptomology of people who have subacute problems relating to myocarditis, relating to blood clots, relating to a lot of these infections, a lot of a lot, you know, or, uh, autoimmune type stuff, um, uh, inflammation, number of different sort of very like standard medical technology deployed at scale um, in a cost-effective way to figure out who are the 5 or 10% of Americans today are at risk of some potentially catastrophic outcome but they're not aware of. You know, and I'm thinking of like the sports figures who die and the kids who, you know, all the sort of the sad stories we see all the time now. If we were actually just screening for these people, the vast majority of these health issues that could, be, before they become catastrophic, could very easily be managed, not necessarily solved, but certainly managed with the amazing medical with amazing medical advances and simple things like blood thinners or changes in changes in you know changes in lifestyle you know you don't want to be a power lifter and going to the gym and being using a ton of adrenaline through your weakened heart if you've got a weakened heart if we can help at scale people understand their current health situation then absolutely we can save a bunch of lives you know and the scale of this problem means that something like a million lives is not crazy um, doing that, we're also going to dig up a lot of data. Um, mm. That's not the focus. The focus is saving lives. But ultimately, you know, we're flying blind. You know, I, you know I, I, I'm really good at what I do, but I'm like, I wasn't a public health researcher. And we've gotten all this data to realize that we see signals of problems and we see we have really good like hunches based on the data and piecing it together. But we don't know for sure. The only way to know for sure what's going on with Americans' health right now is to go out and test them. And like, you know, until someone else can answer why we've got excess mortality, I think that's got to be 
the expectation we should be asking for is like, you know, whether if you're a sports team, you got to test your players. If you're an airline, you got to test your pilots. If you're if you're in the military, you got to test your test your soldiers. If you're an employer, maybe you should test your test your employees. You know, this this doesn't have to be limited to insurance. But what's special about insurance is insurance cares. Insurance has a lot of money, and insurance has always been a leader. Has always been a leader for safety, auto safety from the insurance industry, worker safety from the insurance industry. Uh, electrical device safety, underwriters' laboratories, you know, it's from the insurance industry. Um, building codes and fire departments from the insurance industry. This is what we do, you know, we, we try to help people and prevent loss. Well, and you're, and you're incentivized to do that. I and think, we're you know, incentivized to do this that. Is, this is, I think, the key because, you know, I've, I've, been, <laughs> I've learned and I've mentioned this on many interviews, you know, from Thomas Sowell, thank goodness, at one point, looking at the world from, not from the goals people have necessarily, but from the incentive structures that exist. So, you know, the thing that tells me that this is a very promising uh, direction that you're taking, well, a couple of things, okay, just off the top of my head. One is that you're talking about, you know, lifestyle choices might actually be a solution for people. Like, for example, knowing that they have some kind of, you know, condition yes. that they need to be careful about that, that they didn't know about before, for example. And, and then maybe making lifestyle choices, that might be enough to, to basically deal with that risk, with that increased risk, for example. Then the second side is, of course, that the insurance companies are going to be extremely incentivized to try to reduce, you know, problems, up, upstream problems, yeah. which, which, you know, you're describing are, are, are ha certainly happening now and based on the criteria you mentioned, might, are, you would assume will continue. But in terms of like accountability for what has happened, you want to leave that somewhere else. Well, there's right? a lot of folks involved in all aspects of this. I just don't think that's where we add anything, any particular value. I, I think, I think, you know, um, from an insurer's perspective, this was like a hurricane. A hurricane came through. We'll call it whatever it was. There's now a bunch of people that are damaged and injured. And instead of, it, you know, in, instead of it being like buildings without roofs, where we got to help you get like some sort of tarp over it quickly, so the so there's and you know get you some temporary living expenses and get you know thousands of our people from all over the war, all over the country, you know, down in Florida or Louisiana or wherever it is, to try to put people back together. You know, we got to use that same muscle and that same energy and that sort of care for our neighbor that's sort of central to what the whole purpose of insurance is and what most of these companies care about and think about, especially the mutuals. Um, we just got to use that on a different field, which is there's a lot of sick people that don't even know they're sick, that need to be helped, that we could help. And if we did so with, you know, just by screening and triage and lifestyle choices that are basically free and better understanding and knowledge, my goodness, we could save, you know, hundreds of millions, billions, <laughs> hundreds of billions of dollars. I mean, it depends, you know, it depends on where this, this catastrophe goes, but the sooner, the sooner we, we take a proactive approach to it and try to focus on solving the problem, I think that's where ultimately society moves forward. And this is, and this is you know, lives and dollars. Um, you know, the lives matter, but, but the insurers can pay for this to save the lives because they are committed to pay for them <laughs> because they're already on the hook. You know, and so so they can, and that's just that's loss mitigation. You know, that's that's what insurers do all day long. So let me ask this, okay? Um, in general, I think there's a kind of healthy distrust of the insurance aid industry, and and frankly, a distrust of big pharma and medicine in general at the moment, right? So 
and you're advocating for you know very large scale testing, which of course someone is going to be making money out of, and then someone else is going to be getting the data of. I think people may be skeptical of the proposal, despite the incentive structures seemingly working here. I think you're right. I mean, we just, in some ways, I mean, I'm, I'm laughing as you said it, because we just lived through this whole, you know, test, 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 you know, and, and then of course, depending on how much you're plugged into that, you realize a lot of that wasn't even meaningful. Yeah. Um, I think the reality is it's about empowering the, the individual to manage their health. Um, you know, it's not the place of the life insurance industry or disability insurance industry or, you know, anybody but really the individual to, to make the best decisions they can, including, you know, by using doctors and the teams of professionals that are out there. But the thesis here is basically that people just don't know. And we have a duty, because of where we sit in the economic chain, that we're staring these numbers straight in the face. And we have a, we have a humanitarian duty and a unique opportunity to try to be able to save people or at least empower them to then consult with their local doctor and make changes that they need to to better manage their health. If there weren't this otherwise inexplicable rise in excess mortality, it really wouldn't be the insurance industry's place to do this, or maybe at least it wouldn't be necessary. But, you know, no one else is offering to do it, and it needs to be done. And I think we could start this. And as you're saying, you're saying that you're getting significant buy-in from people. People are excited about helping. People don't want to be in the middle of a political fight between left and right. And so we're going to try to make an inclusive effort to save lives, you know, to seek answers, save lives, and mitigate laws, which is our, which is our three goals. You know, I think we're going to help a lot of people, and we're going to you know, the, the other aspects of all of this, I think there's, there's really good professionals that are going to focus on as they're, in their efforts to help society rebuild. Well, Josh Sterling, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Jan. It was great to be here. Thank you all for joining Josh Sterling and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Janja Kellek. Mm-hmm.